0: Ezekiel chapter 42. Now we've been dealing with these last nine chapters, chapters 40 to 48, primarily focused upon the restoration of Israel as a nation in the land when the Messiah, who is Jesus, of course, will return and not only to restore the land to his people and restore Israel now after the tribulation period I'm going to throw some terms out there we've been studying over the last two or three years actually as we've been dealing with the issues of prophecy but um, at the end of the seven year period of tribulation which is for Israel itself the nation of Israel and the people of Israel for them to come to their Messiah and realize who their Messiah truly is. Then it is, of course, at that time that Jesus will come into the, uh, into the city of Jerusalem to do as the Scripture says, which is to sit on the throne of David, which is in the new temple, which Jesus himself is going to build. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And uh, rule and reign for a thousand years on the earth. That's called the millennium or the millennial reign of Christ. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the millennium as we get into the last few chapters of Ezekiel. But what we've seen Ezekiel as a prophet do in these last chapters is be taken by the Lord, actually placed by vision, having a vision that God gives him of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' return. So he sees all of the the topography of of Israel. And those of you who have been with us to Israel know what the topography is as far as the the Temple Mount is concerned, the size of the Temple Mount, the size of the the, the old city of Jerusalem that has the walls around it today. And uh, know that it's all going to be different. The reason we know it's going to be different is because we already see in the text how big the, 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 the temple mount itself has to be for the temple of the Messiah, which is the, the last temple on this earth anyway, and how, how big the, uh, the structure is going to be. We've already talked about how the angel, the angelic messenger, has come and measured with the uh, rod that is six uh, long Cubits, which is ten and a half feet long, and has measured all of the uh, uh, the inner court, outer court, the walls, and and uh, and of course the temple itself. And Ezekiel, the prophet, has been with the angelic messenger, the, who's been taking him on the tour of this new place. Remember that the first thing he takes, the first place he takes him to is at a very high point. Which means, again, the topography is going to be so different, but he's going to be at a place where he sees that whole property of, of, of land that the new temple is going to be built upon. It will be a completely different temple mount. Okay, so with all of that in mind, then, we have been primarily seeing all of the measuring going on and, and noticing that there are some... Uh, Spiritual things that we're learning, you know, because what we're dealing with is something that is going to become literal. It is not just allegorical. It is not just metaphoric. It, it's not just symbol symbolic. It is a real temple because of the measurements. It is a real temple that God is building, or that Christ will build when He comes. So we left off then with. Ezekiel going into the inner court, which is called the holy of holy the, the holy place, I should say, and then also being brought to the door of the most holy place, which is the uh, most holiest location, the holiest of all as the Bible describes it. The angel himself went in. We learned last time that there was no veil, there's no curtain. Because Jesus has already fulfilled being the curtain himself, being torn in two. And when Jesus died, the, the, the veil was torn in two in the temple. And there is no, there is no veil because Jesus fulfilled that through his, through his bodily sacrifice. And there is no candle in the uh, holy place because Jesus is the light of the world. There is no showbread or table of showbread because Jesus is the bread of life. So, with all of that in mind, that's, those are the distinctions of the new temple. We get into chapter 42. I'm going to do a lot of reading. I hope you can stay up with me. You can get the CD later if you want to go over it again slower. Or watch it on live stream, And say hello to our livestream people uh, who are with us tonight. Hi. Okay. And then he brought me forth into the utter court. Ezekiel says... The way toward the north. And he brought me into the chamber that was over against the separate place and which was before the building toward the north. And the, the only thing we're describing here is, is those those three-story buildings that are connected to the side of the temple. Those are going to be the apartments of the priests. I gave it away. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. But I'm just letting you know why, why we talked about those those rooms that were uh, not attached, but actually by ledges, they were connected to the temple itself. And you'll see a picture of it in just a minute. So, um, verse 2. Before the length of 100 cubits was the north door, and the breadth was 50 cubits. Over against the 20 cubits, which were for the inner court, and over against the pavement, which was for the outer court. The outer court is the outer court. Was gallery against gallery in three stories. That's what I was talking about. And before the chambers was a walk of 10 cubits, breadth inward a way of one cubit, uh, and their doors toward the north. And now the upper chambers were shorter. And by the way, I'm not going to go back into the uh, the issues of all the measurements because uh, once again, we, we did that. And uh, uh, when you see The pictures and and I I gave you all those little charts at one time that shows how, you know, the comparison of, of, of Ezekiel's temple to the other temples, much, much bigger. And then we're going to realize that the temple mount itself is even bigger than we thought. Okay, verse four, I'm sorry, six, for they were in three stories, but had not pillars as the pillars of the courts. And therefore the building was straightened more, which means it was narrowed more than the lowest and of the middlest from the ground. And uh, the wall that was without, over against the chambers toward the utter court on the fore part of the chambers, the length thereof was 50 cubits. For the length of the chambers that were in the utter court was 50 cubits, and lo, before the temple were 100 cubits. And from under these chambers was the entry on the east side as one goeth into them from the utter court. The chambers were in the thickness of the wall of the court toward the east over against the separate place. And over against the building, if you're sitting here thinking, what is he talking about, don't worry, I'll explain in just a moment. And the way before them was like the appearance of the chambers which were toward the north, as long as they, and as broad as they. And all their goings out were both according to their fashions, and according to their doors. And according to the doors of the chambers that were toward the south was a door in the head of the way, even the way directly before the wall toward the east, as one entereth them. And then said he unto me, The north chambers and the south chambers, which are before the separate place, they be holy chambers, where the priests that approach unto the Lord shall eat the most holy things. There shall they lay the most holy things, and the meat offering, and the sin offering, and the trespass offering, for the place is holy. By the way, I didn't mention this, but I should have, but I mentioned it last week and the week before, don't forget that we talked about the fact that this is a temple yet to be built. It is a temple where there will be sacrifices given. We talked about the fact that the sacrifices are not going to be sacrifices like those sacrifices before Jesus came, because Jesus, when he came, fulfilled all sacrifices. So everything becomes now a memorial unto the people living on the earth to show them the things that Jesus had already done for them. Remember, there are going to be people on the earth for a thousand years during the reign of Christ. Okay, so that's just a reminder from the things that we studied earlier. Verse 14, very important to understand this. The last two verses here, verses 13 and 14, are are the ones to understand the most. All the other stuff, uh, don't worry. When the priests enter therein. Then shall they not go out of the holy place into the utter court or the outer court, but there they shall lay their garments wherein they minister, for they are holy. So the the garments are holy. What they put on them are holy. They cannot take those holy garments out of these chambers because they use those for the things that are holy to the Lord as they are offering and preparing sacrifices and doing them when when they do them in the right place. And notice the last thing, and shall put on other garments and shall approach uh, to those things which are for the people. Let me just explain here now that what we're going to be dealing with are the distinctions between the sacred and the profane, the sacred and the profane, the sacred and the secular. And not secular in a, in a bad sense. But we're looking at that thing which is done that is holy and those things that are done on a daily basis that we do every day while we are all in our hearts to remain holy. Okay? So the angelic messenger was now leading the prophet Ezekiel back to the outer court to inspect two buildings that are to be used specifically by the priests. And these buildings... As I said, we're just outside the inner courtyard. One was built against the north wall of the inner court, and the other against the south wall. I'm sure that there is some great significance that we won't be aware of until we get there as to the dimensions and placement of these chambers, but I do find it interesting. I do find it interesting that there are some commentators, and read a couple today, as a matter of fact, who believe that these rooms these 30 rooms as they, on either side are, are the many mansions of John 14. I'm not really sure if that's the case or not, uh, but it's an interesting thought that they believe that they may be the many mansions of John 14. Well, you're going to need a lot more mansions than just you know the 60 that might be there. But whether that's true or not, you know, we'll soon find out, so it's not a thing to worry about. Uh, if we have that uh, picture, let's put it up. And, and, and again, this gives us, I'll try to look back here. You know, I have a pointer somewhere. Do I have it here? Oh. So, let's see. Okay, it, that's the, these are the areas that we're talking about here that are right up against the temple. Here's the inner court, most holy, or the holy place, the most holy place right here. And remember, there's a building in the back. We didn't know really what it's for. So here's the priest chambers in that area. So that's, that's what we're dealing with. What I want to kind of point out while we still have this up is because there are sacrifices and, and, and offerings and all, you have kitchens. So here's the priest's kitchens. There's kitchens on the corners where the storage chambers are. And all of that has to do with sacrifice, and offering. So everything is placed in a, in a position or, or a particular location for the work of the temple. Okay. I think what is significant also is that these are three stories high. And yet the temple and the walls of the temple are much higher. So it is a Stunning, or it will be a stunning uh, temple and uh, location to look at based on what we can try to put together in our minds, in our finite minds, of the infinite plans of God for this particular uh, temple. All right? So I can say then that there is some significance to the placement of these priestly rooms. And it is as though the Lord would want his worshipers, those who are active in the preparation and the act of worship. Because you have to remember that the priests performed these particular offerings and sacrifices for the people. The people were to be in awe of what God was doing in their presence. This being in the tabernacle, uh, in, in in Solomon's temple, in, in uh, Zerubbabel's temple, and Herod's temple. But most importantly, you know, the temple, as we talked about over the last few weeks, is is a very significant place to God because it is the place where he meets us to worship. So it's the activeness of the people. And, and I have to remind you that the the New Testament, for the believer in Jesus Christ is always reminding us of the fact that we are a kingdom of priests. So all of us are that kind of worshiper that comes into the very area of what we call the throne of God. Because in the most holy place, by the way, if you remember in the temple and in the tabernacle, the bema seat was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant, of course, had the two uh, cherubim facing each other. It was made out of wood, but it was, la- uh, uh, um, it was uh, covered with gold. A beautiful piece of furniture contained the law. The, the tablets of the law contained other things in it. The manna contained the rod that budded, and all of that was the seat, or the throne, as it were, of God in the presence of the people. So, many times, as we see in the book of Hebrews, a couple of times when it's mentioned, uh, that we come to the throne of God, because access has been made for us to come, to obtain mercies and to find grace for help in time of need so yet when we gather together as a kingdom of priests what are we doing we are daily offering sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving unto our god in the name of jesus christ and truly by the power of the holy spirit because we can never separate the presence of the godhead the father the son the holy spirit from the worship that we've come to give. that We've come to worship one true God in three persons. So the Lord would want his worshipers, his active worshipers, close to himself. And we wonder, there's, why are those two apartments complexes right next to the temple? There's one psalm that alludes to this, and it's, it's a verse of a psalm. It's Psalm 84, verse 4. And, and when I saw this, I said, you know, this is, this is perfect for this uh, um, architecture here. Because it says, blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. And if we're that close, as far as we who are the kingdom of priests, that will be ministering unto the Lord day in and day out, day, you know, night and day. And by the way, that for a thousand years on this earth. And of course, when we get to heaven for eternity, there is no night. So <laughs> we're just worshiping the Lord. <laughs> but this says, blessed are they that dwell in thy house. And now it gives you a little bit more of an understanding of what Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross when he said, let not your heart be troubled. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am there you may be also. So it makes sense that God wants his people who worship him in spirit and in truth to be in his house. So this is, a, I would say, a grand picture of that during the time of the millennium. Now we want to get directly to the message of the primary purpose For these two priest buildings, a purpose that will be quite instructive to us as believers living in these last days as we see the day of Jesus Christ approaching. So consider, if you will, that the purpose of these buildings for the priests is to teach both ministers and people. And again, I I, want to bring you to mind that we as believers in Jesus Christ are all called to serve. Therefore, we are all called to be ministers. Don't look at me like that. (laughs) We're all called to be ministers because the word for servant is the word we use for minister. We're all called to serve the Lord. So it's important that we understand what's happening here. It's to teach us the importance of distinguishing between the holy and the unclean or as some would say, the sacred and the secular. The things of God and the things of the world. There are great distinctions. The sad thing is that sometimes even in some churches, you can't see the distinction between the church and the world or the things of God in the world. I'm not trying to judge, I'm just trying to tell you this is what I've seen. And you know, I, I pray, Lord God, never let us move in any direction that the things of the world become more important than the things of God. We have to have a distinction between the righteousness of God and man's need for the things of the world. There's a distinction. Because what man truly needs is for spiritual righteousness. We need spiritual righteousness. So it goes, of course, without saying that, that God demands that his people are holy even as he is holy the word holy both in the Hebrew and in the Greek have the same real meaning though they're different words the meaning is for holy it is to be set apart set apart we see that term a lot when we deal with the sacrifices in the Old Testament these sacrifices are set apart unto the Lord we are to be set apart unto the Lord. In fact, when we deal with, let's say, the dietary laws that were given to the Jewish people or given to the children of Israel, in the book of Leviticus chapter 11, verses 43 through 45, this is, this is the whole section dealing with the, just the dietary laws and the animals and what kind of animals to eat and what kind of animals not to eat. It says, you shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creepeth. I'm going to add something here. I'm not adding to the scriptures because somewhere else it does talk about how we are to avoid doing things with animals. I think you understand what I'm saying. All right. So both in that, and there's a law, and in the dietary aspect, there's a reason why God said certain animals are unclean. And to be abominable because of any creeping thing, whether you eat it or anything else, means that you're abominable unto the Lord. Which, I mean, you are the worst of the worst unto the Lord. So he says, You shall not make yourself abominable with any creeping thing that creepeth, neither shall you make yourself unclean with them, that you should be defiled thereby. Then he says this, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourself... Another word that is linked to the aspect of of sanctity or holiness, which again is to be set apart. He says, "For uh, you shall therefore sanctify yourselves, set yourselves apart, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. God says, I'm holy, I'm your God, you need to be holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now, he is speaking of a certain kind of animal or type of animal that creeps on the earth. Okay, But then he says in verse 45, For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. But then in Leviticus 19, in, in in the passage where he is linking this particular statement to the Ten Commandments, the commandments that were given to the people, And when you read Leviticus 19, you can see all the references to, you know, uh, uh, honoring your parents and, you know, just other other of the commandments. You see it there. I'll just give you verse 2. It says, speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, you shall be holy or set apart for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, the Apostle Peter himself would actually quote from these passages in his first letter to the church when he writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Now listen, he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, you know, to gird up means to take whatever long garments you have and and wrap them around and tie them very tightly around your waist so that you can run and do stuff. Be free to do the things you need to do. He says, "'Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, in other words, the ignorant things you did in the world, but as he which has called you is holy, notice, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation,' which means all manner of conduct,' Everything that you do, all your actions, is your conversation, because it is written. So what's he quoting? He's quoting the law. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Torah. He is saying, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, obviously, as Peter has proven, this purpose is not exclusive to the Old Testament. To be holy is not exclusive to the Jewish people. It is not exclusive just to those who follow the law. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, the apostle Paul himself said, If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off. Now, most of you, most of you know that when I've taught this, anytime it says to put something off, comes from the picture of taking a garment off of yourself. Put off, concerning the former conversation, what is conversation? Your conduct. Put off, concerning the former conversation, the old man. You take off the old man like a garment, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man. Just like a garment, you put on a new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Paul in another place talks about putting on the righteousness of Christ as another garment. A new garment. We're no longer clothed with the garments of this world. We are now clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And again, it's his righteousness. But God is serious about us being Detached from the things of the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and all of those things that would keep us from worshiping and serving the Lord rightly and properly in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 it says follow peace some translations say pursue peace follow peace with all men and holiness what does that mean? We're to follow peace with all men, and we're to follow and pursue holiness. If, we're, if we are grammatically correct here, we are to pursue holiness without which, by the way, Paul says, without which no man shall see the Lord. We will not see the Lord without holiness, without being set apart from the world. And so the priests are to eat of the holy things within the temple enclosure in the chambers or rooms prepared for them. And by the way, we could go all the way back to uh, all of the uh, commands given to Moses to, you know, when, when the priesthood of Aaron was being established, and how they themselves and the and the uh, the Levites, you know, those of the children of Levi, uh, they were to also imp, uh, impart in the. Uh, in in the sacrifices and offerings they were given the opportunity to do that they were always taken care of by the Lord Uh, they didn't have they weren't given any land why? because all the priests were to be spread throughout all the land in every tribe and the tribes were to were to provide for them and so they always partook of the things that were offered unto the Lord as far as food goes on in this particular illustration as well So in this they illustrate God's priestly house uh, today, feeding upon Christ. This is what all of this is pointing to for us and and, and what we are to do today. That uh, it's an illustration of God's priestly house today, feeding upon Christ Jesus through prayerful reading, prayerful study of the word, prayerful meditating upon his word, knowing that he alone is the satisfying portion of every believer's heart. Jesus is the satisfying portion of every heart that belongs to every believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus suggested this in that most controversial passage of Scripture in John chapter 6. Some of you may remember this when we were, because we're doing John on Sunday mornings. This was a long time ago. But it was the time when many people departed from Jesus because of their poor, poor understanding. They were just misunderstanding the things that Jesus was talking about. And I'm going to give you a good passage here, so you you kind of bring this back to your remembrance, but there's a reason for it. In John 6, verse 51, and, and even before this, but... Uh, he's, he's referring to it so the confusion was already in the people. Jesus wasn't trying to confuse them by the way I understand this but he knew that they weren't getting it. Okay? He said I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Now, I have to tell you that some churches today continue to believe this the way they be- the opponents of Jesus believed it then. That he was talking about eating his flesh. And the Jews, verse 52, therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, why is it that when? Now, uh, by the way, this is just my little rant, if you don't mind. But why is it that you know Jesus would talk in in, in terms like this before, and they would get it and get mad at him? But well, they always got mad at him. But he would talk in these terms, and they would understand what he's saying. It's an allegory, or, or it's a it's a metaphor, or or it's a symbol, or it's it's. It's a type of, you know. But here now, they say, oh, what, how does he want us to He wants us to eat his flesh. Why now do they miss this? So they say, I'll can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then, then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, is he really talking about his flesh and blood? Really? And he goes on. (laughs) Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. (laughs) He says, you take me into your whole life. You believe in me and trust in me and who I am and what I am and what I have said to you I've come to do. You believe me with all your heart. You're taking me in completely into your life as if you're eating everything about me. Because if I'm the bread of life, I am the most sustained or or, or sufficient, I should say, sufficient nutrition for you spiritually spiritually for my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him as the living father has sent me and I live by the father So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. You will live through me, because of me. And this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. Don't you think that would have been enough of a clue here? This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread, shall live forever. And notice these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. He said it in a place where they needed to listen and talk about it. And we're told that many that day walked away from Jesus. He was just saying, I am the most important, important portion for you. The most satisfying spiritual meal that you could ever have is receiving me. Beginning of the gospel of John, it says, to as many as received him, received him, take him in. Deeply into the heart. To as many as received him. To them gave he the right to become the sons of God. To as many as what? Believe in his name. Who are born not of the flesh or of blood. But of the spirit. So it is important then to note two things. All the offerings that the priest will feed upon All of them speak of Jesus the Messiah, all of them. And again, this goes back to why there are going to be uh, sacrifices during the millennium. Not because they're required, as I said last time or the time before, but also because it it was required for the cleansing that was done. But it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't going to save anybody. It wasn't going to cleanse anybody's sin because Jesus had already accomplished that. And Jesus is now in their presence. Second, the garments they will be wearing during this specific time will be changed as they leave this area because their garments are to be sacred or set apart for ministering unto the Lord. So the garments, by the way, in verses 13 and 14, The garments or robes represent, in effect, the holiness and the righteousness, the holy conduct, the godliness that we are to have in this present age as we await Christ's return. That's what they represent. Holiness unto the Lord. It isn't about our outward appearance. It's not what we wear on the outside that determines, you know, what's on our inside. For the most part. Sometimes it does, sorry to say, in this society of ours. So many different subcultures that think that, you know, the things that we were, you know, let you know who I am. No, it's what we are in the heart. That's why Peter says in Second Peter 3, verses 11 through 14, he says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. And he's talking about the end time. In other words, he's talking really about after all that's taken place, what's going to happen after the millennium. Seeing then all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation or conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. That's how we are to be found now before Jesus comes soon. Remember that Jesus said, "I I am coming quickly. Now, if he said that 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago to John in the book of Revelation, I am coming quickly, and he says it a few times, and John says, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, if he said it then, then to John, how much sooner is it for us, the coming of the Lord? Could it be today? Y'all are afraid to answer? Of course it could be today. You could say that. It could be today. Why? Because there's nothing else that has to happen for Jesus to come for his church. Nothing else has to happen for him to come and take us home. There are other things that are going to happen. We see things happening today. In fact, we see now prophecies taking place. When I say now prophecies, I'm talking about prophecies that are being fulfilled right now from the scriptures. Look at the Middle East. Middle East right now is getting set up for two wars. They haven't happened yet, but they're going to happen very shortly. We've talked about them over the last year and a half. The, the Psalm 83 war and the Ezekiel 38 war. Everything is setting up for those two wars right now. And what, are the, what is the target? Israel. If people today are, would, would look and study the scriptures instead of, 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 of trying to, to look at things from a political standpoint and say, well, you know, we, we need to support the Palestinians because Israel has been the oppressor. You haven't been to Israel. We've been to Israel. We've seen how Israel takes care of people. They, they even take care of their enemies. We see, it, we see it on a daily basis over there. And again, I, I got a little passionate <laughs> this weekend yeah, talking about, you know, Psalm 37, and, and I'm sorry, not Psalm 37, uh, uh, Ezekiel 37, and the Valley of Dry Bones, and, and all these bones that, that, you know, were dead. It, really, when you think about it, it is a picture of a nation rising up out of the holocaust of the 20th century and becoming a nation again. Happenstance or God's doing. If you understand and believe the word of God, it's God's doing. I'm afraid I'm not going to finish tonight, so bear with me. Just remind me to put a Well, I can't put a bookmark in this iPad here, so we'll figure out way to do this. Anyway, where are we? Okay, our conduct. Our conduct is important while we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. May I say it again? He can come tonight. Let's be ready. So as we move on, we come to the section with the final measurements, which completes Ezekiel's tour of the temple area, as seen in, in his vision. These measurements are not easily explained, the ones that I'm going to read to you right now. Uh, They have certain difficulties, and that's just from the standpoint of measuring, okay? So it's not a big deal right now because we know uh, that the original text is without fault. So the text knows better than we do right now what, what this is all about. It's not that important for us to really, you know, understand all of this yet. So bear with me. Verse 15 of our text, now, when he had made an end of measuring the inner house, he brought me forward toward the gate whose prospect is toward the east and measured it round about. He measured the east side uh, uh, with the measuring reed, 500 reeds. This is a lot. This is, I mean, this is almost a mile, folks. So just letting you know, depending, I mean, if we're dealing with a long cubit, then it's a, it's almost a mile he measured the east side of the measuring reed, 500 reeds, with a measuring uh, reed roundabout. Now, what he's measuring, of course, is that temple mount area, the whole of the mount, the whole of it, okay? Uh, He measured the north side, 500 reeds, with a measuring uh, roundabout. He measured the south, 500 reeds, with a measuring reed. He turned about to the west side and measured 500 reeds, with a measuring reed. So, if you see 500, 500, 500, 500, what do you have? You have this massive square, really big square. Uh, He had measured it by the four sides. It had a wall round about 500 reeds long, 500 reeds broad. But here's the reason. The whole reason at the end of verse 20 to make a separation between the sanctuary and the profane place. The separation that is referred to is from that which is sacred and that which is secular or profane. The word for profane in the Hebrew literally means common, common. The dimensions of such a spacious courtyard, some believing measuring nearly a mile square, remind us that the topography, again, will definitely have to be changed in order to accommodate such a large temple footprint. So we have to remember a few things about the millennial kingdom. Why such a big, big area around the temple? Well, if you read the prophecy of Psalm 22, remember the prophecy of Psalm 22 begins with the prophecy of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. But toward the end of the psalm, it speaks of his kingdom. And it says in verses 27 and 28, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. So it's a very large place because there's going to be a lot of people there. All the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. If you look at Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 4, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to the light, and kings to the brightness of his rising, of, of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, round about and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from afar, thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. So, I mean, if this is the place where they will be worshiping during the millennial kingdom, then there's a lot of people that are going to come to worship. So this is an obvious reason for the size of this particular, what we'll call the temple footprint for uh, the area that separates the sanctuary from the profane. And again, it's it's to remind us of the importance of understanding the distinction between what is holy and what is unholy. What is holy and what is unholy. What is clean and what is unclean. What is sacred and what is profane. Things that are common aren't always bad, right? I mean, there are some common things. I mean, we all are common people. It's not a bad thing in in, in some cases. But the idea has to be that as holy as God is, the common is just not even close. We, We need to understand that. Man tries to make, you know, this, this is the reason why I struggle so much with people that always talk about God like he's the man upstairs. He's not, first of all, he's not a man in the sense of like you and me. You can see me, I can see you. You're not hiding from me, I'm not hiding from you. But the Bible is very clear. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not a man. It says that he should lie. So we try to, you know, we try to bring God down to our level. i say that much of the church today has tried to bring Jesus down to our level. With all of this political correctness, all of this this, this political talk, taking sides in that, in that particular sense politically against the things of God. Churches allowing the, with, without considering or calling certain things sin, just letting those things go. It's okay, uh, Jesus loves all of you. Of course he does, he died for all of us. The fact of the matter is he died because we're sinners. And sin is Sin. I really, I don't think I'm going to make it to the the end here. That's okay. We're We're going to try. We'll be done by 11. No, I'm just kidding. I'm almost done. Ah. You know, we're to remember also that the Lord has room for all who truly come to him. But by the way, all who truly come to him, sinners are to come to Jesus. I quote this time and time again. I mean, it just it just f- comes out of me because it's just so much something that I don't want people to misunderstand. It's, it's Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, when Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, that's not excusing sin. That's saying, come and bring that sin to me. I'm going to bear it eventually. And he did already. But come to him. Lay your burdens down. Lay your burdens down at the foot of the cross. He's already bore them for you. His arms of love are open to receive all who truly love him and will come to him. Ezekiel 43. Let's let's do a little bit of Ezekiel 43. I'll do as much as I can. Verse 1. afterward he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. The glory of God of Israel. May I tell you that's Jesus? And there's a specific time that that's going to happen. The glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision, which I saw even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. Now, by, by the way, Ezekiel didn't come to destroy the city. So let me break this down to you where the King James people didn't put the commas. Because you need the commas there, Right? He said, and it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came, comma, the vision to destroy the city. It was the vision to destroy the city, not Ezekiel that came to destroy the city. Okay, got it? All right. Maybe you've got a, another translation that makes it clear, but I'm just trying to clear it up for those of you that have King James. Okay. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kebar, which is, of course, the vision that he saw when, of course, God showed him how the Babylonians were going to come and destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house of the way, or by the way, of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. So he comes back to the temple, and he sees that the temple is now filled with the glory of the Lord. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house, and the man stood by me. I heard him speaking. We'll get to that in a second. So this passage in chapter 43 deals with the very special manifestation of God's glory as it returns and fills the temple in the last days of human history. But take note, take note, This isn't going to happen until the Messiah, the Mashiach of Israel, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Lord Jesus, the Christ, returns to set up his kingdom on earth. At that time he will come to live among the Israelites. Now they will be the true and genuine believers. Why? Because they have now seen him whom they have pierced. And they will have him with them forever. I want you to consider these passages, if you will. Zechariah 14, verse 4. And his feet, speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. Remember, it says that he's coming from the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof. In other words, the Mount of Olives in front of where Jesus is, it's going to open up, cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. That valley, the Kidron Valley is going to go east and west. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me me read this and do this right. Okay, so... He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. It, it, it shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. So it's, it's going to, in other words, it's going to make an opening for him. Let's, let's, let's get there first. Let me get, let me get this in the right order. All right, the opening is going to be made for him to go toward the, to, you know, toward the temple going west. And then it says, and there shall be a very great valley. So that's the Kidron Valley that's in front of him going north and south. Half of the mountain shall be removed toward the north, half of it toward the south. Okay, I finally got it right. Sorry. Okay. So the cleaving is that direction that he's going to go west into the city of Jerusalem and the wall that was built by the Turks in the, in the 16th century that's enclosed right now because they knew about this prophecy. They said, no, the Messiah is not going to come through this gate. So they, 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 they stoned it up. Uh, that's not going to be a problem for the, the stone, which the builders rejected because he's going to knock that thing down anyway. Okay, no problem there. And then there's a prophecy in, the, in, the, uh, in Haggai, chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, that says, according to the word that I covenant with you, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, <coughs> excuse me, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. The desire of all nations is the Messiah. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember what the word glory means. Kavod. Kavod is the word glory, which means the heaviness. It is the weight of God. It is the weight of the glory of God. It is the weight of the light of God. Uh, It's just a weight that we can't understand because it is is in a dimension that we don't live in right now. That we ourselves don't actually, in these finite bodies, can understand. It is the weight of God's glory. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater. Speaking of the latter house, which is the one that we're talking about now, than, the, than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. So everybody that's been talking about peace, you know, back in the, those of us that have been around since the 60s, you know, hey, peace, you know, make you know, peace and you know have peace and you know love and not war. And it goes, kind of goes on today, but uh, there's no peace in this world. The only peace is going to come is when Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David, which is in the temple, which is his place for him to dwell. That's where his glory is going to be. So Jesus, by the way, is the glory of God here in this passage. So remember that Ezekiel had seen God's glory depart from the temple due to the people's terrible sins. He'd seen this before. But that wasn't a new experience for the Israelites. Go back to the time of Samuel and the high priest Eli. The Lord withdrew his glory and allowed the Philistines to capture the Ark of the Covenant, the very Ark that symbolized the presence of God among his people. And as a result, Eli's daughter, Eli, Eli. Eli, his daughter-in-law, who was married to Phinehas, named her firstborn son Ichavod. Ichavod. Kavod is what? Glory. Ichavod Means no glory. Ichavod literally means the glory has departed. So now we see that the glory will return and it will return to Israel. In Revelation chapter 1, John describes Jesus in all of his glory. But there's one verse that I'm going to talk about, and it's, it, it ties into what we see here in Ezekiel, where it talks about a, a voice, the sound of many waters. Well, listen to this, Revelation 1.15, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Who is it? Yeshua, Jesus. Luke chapter 21, verse 27, Jesus says, Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory great glory great weight of god's light and presence by the way remember what he says in the next verse when you see these things keep looking up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws near colossians 3 verse 4 when christ who is our life shall appear then shall you also appear with him in glory guess guess who gets to come with jesus when he comes into Jerusalem. Any guesses? You, you, you come. He just said you. Just the Colossians? Yeah, praise the Lord. One person's going to go. You, believer, you are going to come with him in glory. All right, I really wanted to encourage you with that, but oh, we're all tired. It's been a long day. It's all right, go home and and just say, Lord, come quickly and keep looking up. So standing in amazement, the prophet not only saw the glory return to the temple, the Lord said to Ezekiel in verse 6, he spoke to him, and this is what he said to Ezekiel. Verses 7 through 12. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. And my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile; neither they nor their kings, their, by their whoredom, pretty strong language, nor by the carcasses of their kings in their high places, in their setting of their threshold by my thresholds and their posts by my posts and the wall between me and them, they have even defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. Go back to the earlier portions of of the book of Ezekiel where. Ezekiel was taken into the very temple of the time and he saw all of these terrible abominations done by the priests, the very leaders of, of uh, religious leaders of the people. Uh, wherefore, he says, uh, I have consumed them in my anger. Now, let them put away their whoredom, which means going after other gods and the carcasses of their kings far from me. And I will dwell in the midst of them forever. Thou son of man, show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. In other words, show them what I'm showing you now. Show them this. So that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And let them measure the pattern. Interesting phrase, let them measure the pattern. How immense is this place to say? What a distinction there is to be between the sanctuary and the profane. The sacred and the secular. The holy and the unholy. The clean and the unclean. Let them measure it. Let them see that I'm serious about this. And if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof. By the way, you know what the form of the house was? And we saw it in, in pictures earlier and, and uh, where, the, uh, where the Holy of Holies is and the holy place, the temple itself, and then these other structures. You know what it looks like from above? It looks like a cross. It's a cross. Show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof and the goings out thereof and the comings in thereof and all the forms thereof and all the ordinances thereof and all the forms thereof and all the laws thereof and write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them. He says, listen, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it in obedience to me. This is the law of the house. Upon the top of the mountain, the whole limit thereof, Roundabout shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. If you give me a five, five extra minutes, we'll finish. The Lord explained to the prophet what was happening and why. In other words, God's glory will fill the temple for four purposes. First, the new temple will be the place where the throne of God and His glorious presence will be and centered upon the Messiah of Israel the Lord Jesus this is why in Zechariah 6 verses 12 and 13 it says and speak unto him saying thus speaketh the Lord of hosts saying behold the man whose name is the branch and he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord and even he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. We could spend a lot of time on that because of time. Let me just mention, it's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Secondly, the purpose of the temple will be to honor God's holy name. And to guarantee a righteous society throughout all Israel. No longer will they profane his name by false worship or wicked behavior. That's verses 7 and 8. I mean, the Lord's going to be there in their midst. They're not going to profane my name again. And they're not going to commit this wicked behavior. Thirdly, that was verses 7 and 8, by the way. Thirdly, the new temple will be the hope of God's presence on earth realized to stir the present generation to repent. Verse 9. Let them put away their whoredom and the carcasses of their kings far from me and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. To put away means to turn away from them and to go away from them as far as they can. Fourthly, the purpose of the new temple will be to teach that God is holy and people are sinful. And the reality, and we talked about it, is that those living on the earth during the time of the millennial reign of Christ are still people. And they have to respect the holiness of the place where they come to worship the God who now oversees and, and reigns and rules and reigns all through the whole world. For a thousand years but when the thousand years is over don't forget that satan will be let loose for a very short time there will be people deceived even then why because all men have been born in sin even those who have arrived to that place almost done here uh let me just read a couple of things here no this is it Turn to Ezekiel 36, we'll, we'll close with this. It's going back a little bit, but uh, this, is, this is what it is all based upon. The new covenant that he will make with the house of Israel. We studied it already. It says in verses 25 through 28, And we'll close with this. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Don't forget that Israel will come to the Lord. Remember what Paul said, all Israel shall be saved. Now it makes more sense from the standpoint of knowing what Ezekiel says when Jesus arrives and comes again and they see him whom they pierce and they weep because of of knowing what they had rejected before. Yet he will receive them to himself and they will believe and all Israel will be saved. All the other nations of the world will be on the earth and how God's going to deal with them, of course, is just as we see here. To those who come, he will give them a new heart and a new spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's already done that for you. You have a new heart and you have a new spirit.